This is exactly right. This story contains adult content and language, along with references to sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. I remember hearing the 911 call about this, and I am not a crime reporter. So the thing that happens next is really, really horrible and simple at the same time. I'm Kate Winkler-Dawson, a nonfiction author and journalism professor in Austin, Texas. I'm also the host of the historical true crime podcast, Tenfold More Wicked on Exactly Right. I've traveled around the world interviewing people for the show. I've interviewed some people in person and some from my home studio over Zoom, and they are all excellent writers. They've had so many great true crime stories, and now we want to tell you those stories with details that have never been published. Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words is about the choices that writers make, good and bad. It's a deep dive into the stories behind the stories. Karen Cahoe is an award-winning reporter who wrote an article in 2015 called Jennifer Pan's Revenge. Karen went to high school with Jennifer Pan in the early 2000s in a suburb of Toronto called Markham. They both came from families that immigrated from East Asia, and they both felt cultural pressures to succeed. But Karen and Jennifer would take very different paths. And now Jennifer Pan is in prison for murder. Karen lives in New York City, so you might hear some city sounds occasionally. My name is Karen Ho. My byline is Karen Cahoe. I am a business reporter by trade, and I'm currently the senior reporter covering the business of sustainability at Business Insider. It was a really large case in Canada uh, at the time. Initially, I pitched it actually not as a feature at all. You know this from teaching journalism. I pitched it as a 1,000 word story, very specifically a moment prior to the trial. And I said, I have this connection to this national case. And it's really about re-examining what you think you know about people from your youth, from high school, and what happens when you find out that they are being charged with one of the worst crimes imaginable. This story is sort of about a serial liar. There have been examples in pop culture where people have lied chronically. The risk of revealing the lie would be greater than continuing it. Tell me what is at the heart of this story. Where do we start? The story really at the heart of it is about Jennifer, this woman I went to high school with. She was a year older than me, and we had a lot of things in common, including family backgrounds, the area in which we grew up. We also had a lot of overlapping friends. The high school that we went to, it encouraged a lot of students to interact and befriend people in other grades, and it was a lot less cliquey and stereotypical. Pretty inclusive than it sounded like. It advocated self-directed learning, which is a lot closer to, say, a college experience where you got to choose your classes. There was a lot of flexibility in how you spent your day-to-day time. How do you intersect? How are your families similar? Both of us come from families of deep immigrant experience. Jennifer's parents are Vietnamese, Chinese ethnicity, and both of my parents are Chinese immigrants from Hong Kong. There are really specific ideas regarding the roles of daughters in both of these families, as well as expectations regarding academic excellence and also family responsibility. When you immigrate and you give up everything, including your family, sometimes your previous education, and you work really, really hard to establish a new life somewhere very far away, There is an expectation that your children have to do better to have a better life than the life that you had and that your struggle is worth it. Part of the story is really about understanding that from a personal perspective, having lived it myself. 
And we're not saying this is all East Asian families that come to North America. This is just your specific experience in this community. So let's talk about her family, her parents. They were Vietnamese refugees. There is a significant diaspora within the Vietnamese community that also speaks Cantonese. I had that in common because my family also speaks Cantonese. Where they settled has a very large Chinese population and an immigrant population that is primarily East Asian. The high school was down the street from a mall that had become known for basically providing a lot of services for this ethnic community. So you could go and get essentially all the items that you wanted, groceries, electronics, clothing. And so it has been incredibly successful at catering to that community. But at the same time, it can feel really isolating and encourage cultural ideas that are not necessarily positive. So a common theme in this story will be societal pressure and family pressure, particularly in Jennifer's case. Tell me about Jennifer's parents and her family structure. What was it like to be in her family? And I think that it'd be interesting to hear the parallels to your family. They had really, you know, laborious working class jobs, right? Working in car parts manufacturers, doing manual labor and work that is often not respective of the types of education and prior experience they had before immigrating. They were classic immigrants who tried to work really hard, saved bought homes, were able to acquire nice cars, and tried to give their children a better life through the expectation that they would help pay for a university, which is significantly cheaper in Canada compared to the U.S., put them in a good school. They were able to provide what they felt was a life of stability and opportunity for their children, including things like figure skating classes for Jennifer. So their hope was what? She was going to go to university in Canada, and did they have an expectation for a type of career that she might have afterward? A lot of parents see the finish line, not just as completing high school and going to a really good university, like the University of Toronto in this particular case, in a position that will be stable and well-paying. The stereotype is doctor, lawyer, engineer, accountant, or something in the medical field, which I am very familiar with. They sent her to a nice high school. Did she have siblings? She did. She had a brother named Felix. What do you remember about Jennifer? Did you guys interact a lot or was it sort of fleeting and you just sort of knew of each other? There were definitely interactions in places like the band room. I was much closer to our mutual friends in many cases, or I had more interactions with our mutual friends than with Jennifer herself. She never appeared to me as like an unpopular person. She was very social. I have memories of where she sat in band practice and like the people she sat around. And she seemed like a very outgoing, social, relatively upbeat person. I think the challenge is because we all wore uniforms. It wasn't like there was a particular style that I could point to the way that she dressed. And she was a very tall and lithe Asian teenager. I would not be surprised if that was something that she learned from figure skating, how to hold yourself. She didn't fulfill any sort of stereotype. Just sort of your average high school student that you went to school with. The problem with that high school was like there wasn't a lot of average students. (laughs) If you could play four different instruments and you also performed at the school talent show and you happened to be taking a really intimidating series of classes, you could still be the popular kid. There wasn't, especially what you see in pop culture regarding jocks or the geeks or anything like that. It was in some ways a real bubble of a place, especially when I attended. It's changed a little bit since But I think it was a place in which being smart or being creative was rewarded. But it sounds challenging. 
Yeah, there were a lot of students who did not attend classes during the day and just goofed off. And so they needed to attend summer school. That was a frequent occurrence if you were bad at managing your time. And then also there was often a big rush at the end of the year to complete an enormous amount of work in a relatively short amount of time. But I think what it did teach people was plainly what was the reward of indulging in your own interests and spending a lot of time in something that was really rewarding and then also finding other people to support you in that endeavor. So if we're switching from Karen, the high school student, to Karen, the reporter, you have somebody that you're writing about, Jennifer, and she's a high school student. She seems to be doing well, relatively popular. When do things start going awry? The pressures to succeed started in elementary school for her. There is a valedictorian and salutatorian in eighth grade. What? People want academic excellence. And then also, you know, when you're competing, right? Like she was a figure skater. And so the idea of competing, performing excellence, working through injury is something that many athletes know from a very, very young age. And also the disappointment on their parents' faces, especially if you've invested a lot of time and money into a specific sport, then it's not just about having fun anymore. It's about, are you wasting everyone's time and money? The expectations grow only further in high school. At the high school, there were a lot of I would say very driven and ambitious students who would talk about taking what we called the big six, all of the math classes, as well as the core science courses, which were chemistry, biology, and physics at a level at which that would make them top applicants to engineering or other elite programs at universities so that they could be set up for a life of success. And I remember hearing from other people what that pressure was like pretty early, right? Like you had to, you had to plan it out over the four years. And that's a lot for like a 13 or 14 year old to deal with on top of relationships and friendships and extracurriculars and all of that other stuff. There was an expectation that she was going to take a program and she either didn't want to do it or she couldn't make the cut and she started lying about it. Is that what it sounds like? Yeah. There had been also changes to her report cards and then eventually to transcripts. There was some photocopying. This is pre-Photoshop. I think that's why there's photocopying, right? Right. And then there is the thing that a lot of people do when they're young and in high school and in college, which is lying about relationships. Lying about relationships specifically that you think your parents will never approve of. Now, is she in a certain type of relationship, specifically with one person? What were the lies around relationships for her? So the lies were primarily around her relationship with another teenager named uh, Daniel Wong, who I knew very, very well. He was a trumpet player who was several years older than both Jennifer and I, and he was really talented. He was Filipino and Chinese. Jennifer and Daniel dated off and on for several years, and that was a relationship that her parents actively discouraged and did not like. Why? Because he was older or cultural or what? Daniel had dealt marijuana. He associated himself with people that they found unfavorable. And then also he was a really gregarious, outgoing guy, but he didn't come across as someone who is very focused or ambitious, like the kind of person who would become a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer. You know, he would volunteer and participate in like marching band competitions. And he was a very devoted trumpet player, but he didn't seem like someone who was the stereotype of like the ideal future son-in-law. He was like an older brother figure to me and my younger sister. In fact, as I say in the story, he came over to my house every day for a year with two other guys and got to know my parents 
I think my mother would buy his favorite flavor of Doritos when he would go to the Aww. grocery store. But it sounds like her parents just did not think this was the perfect match. This is not who they were hoping she would end up with. So they were discouraging her. Were they forbidding it? There is something that I know personally about like a parent doesn't have to say that they're disappointed in you to communicate how deeply disappointed that they are in you or they that they don't want you to do something without an explicit kind of communication. And this is something that I think is very culturally specific. There can be emotional restriction and this like crushing feeling of disappointment and shame that it weighs extra heavy when you understand that she felt a deep loyalty and responsibility as the older daughter. There are a lot of expectations, especially on Asian women, to take care of your parents, to fulfill their expectations and make them happy. And then on top of that, she lived with them for a very long time. It shocks people sometimes when they find out that it's incredibly normal for many children of East Asian immigrants to live at home until basically they get married. Like I moved out at 25. But when I told my white friends, they were all like, oh, we moved out at 18 or we were kicked out at 18. How did you do that? How did you live for so long into your adulthood with your parents? You just know what you know, right? This is just of what you've always been taught. But with that understanding that you're going to have a longer period of being in your literal parents' domicile for longer, even into your adult life, that means it's incredibly difficult to describe the pain of them threatening to take away their like financial and physical support as well as their emotional support, especially if you don't have a lot of close friends that you can crash on their couch or explain the situation. That can become really heavy and determine a lot of choices. You don't have an alternative or an outlet. As a teenager, you're literally taught this horrific grind-like lifestyle, which is to focus entirely on academics. No fun, right? Like no alternatives. What is the metaphor? It's all stick and no carrot. And so on top of that, there was no reward at the end of the tunnel. So I say in the story, midway through grade nine, she was averaging 70% in all subjects with the exception of music. And so she used old report cards scissors, glue, and a photocopier to create a new forged report card with straight A's. Because universities didn't consider marks from grade 9 and 10 for admission, she told herself it wasn't a big deal. So that's when the soft lying started and the rationale for essentially deceiving her parents. And then throughout high school, her parents picked her up from school at the end of every day, monitored her extracurricular activities, and forbade her from attending dances, which her father considered unproductive. Parties were also off limits and boyfriends were verboten until after university. And so when Jennifer was permitted to attend a sleepover at a friend's house, her parents dropped her off late at night and picked her up early the following morning. So by age 22, she had never gone to a club, been drunk, or visited a friend's cottage or gone on vacation without her family. So I say... You know, I related a lot to her because my father specifically had really high expectations for me to be at the top of my class, especially in math and science, to be obedient and to be exemplary in a lot of different ways. And I said very plainly that I felt like he wanted a child who was also like a trophy, someone he could brag about. And I suspected that the achievements of his siblings and their children made him feel insecure and he wanted my accomplishments to match theirs. And so at least throughout high school and parts of university, I felt like a hamster on a wheel, sprinting to meet some sort of expectation that was solely determined by him, that was always just out of reach, but he didn't always communicate them to me either. And in my house, hugs were a rarity. And 
birthday parties and gifts from Santa ceased around age nine. Ironically, when I was a kid, I excelled at figure skating and math. But yeah, my father almost never complimented me even when I excelled. So it sounds like you really did relate to Jennifer. So going back to her story, did she end up graduating from high school? Going back to what we were talking about, which is the extent of her lying, she had continued to doctor her report cards throughout high school, and she did receive early acceptance to a Canadian university. But because she failed calculus in her final year, she wasn't able to graduate. She lied and said that she'd be starting at Ryerson in the fall. She said her plan to her parents was to do two years of science and then transfer over to the University of Toronto's pharmacology program, which was her father's ambition and hope for her. And her father was so delighted that he bought her a laptop. And then she collected used biology and physics textbooks and bought school supplies and actually pretended to attend like orientation. And she even doctored papers stating that she was receiving a loan and convinced her father that she'd won a scholarship to help offset the cost of tuition. And then she pantomimed going to classes while still living at home in downtown Toronto. And then she would go to public libraries where she would research on the web what she thought were relevant studies fill her books with notes, and then she would spend her free time at cafes or visiting Daniel, where he was taking classes at another Toronto-area university. And her parents never picked up on this for a while, right? Her dad would ask her about her studies, and then her mother would tell him not to interfere. To keep up the charade, she would start lying to her friends, too. She lied to her friends? She did, and she built on the lies by telling one friend falsely that her dad had hired a private investigator to follow her. But after two years of these lies, her dad asked her if she was still planning to switch to the University of Toronto, and she said yes, that she had been accepted. Of course, this made her parents super happy. And so she suggested moving in with a friend for a couple of nights a week to reduce the commute that she was taking. But instead of staying with that friend, she was actually staying with Daniel and his family hmm. in another suburb of Toronto. Then she started lying to his parents as well, telling them that her parents were okay with the arrangement and then brushing off their request to meet Jennifer's parents over a dim sum. How can you even keep up with all of those lies? Well, they did it for another two years when she was theoretically supposed to graduate. Jennifer and Daniel hired someone they found online to create a fake transcript full of top grades. Oh, wow. And then for the ceremony, Jennifer told her parents that meant there weren't enough seats and she gave her ticket to a friend so that her parents couldn't attend. But the way that it all fell apart is that then it entered the real world, which was she told her parents about a place that she was volunteering, which I knew well because my sister had volunteered there too. What was it? It was this famous children's hospital in Canada called the Hospital for Sick Children, known as Sick Kids. Mm -hmm. For Jennifer, saying that she was volunteering at the blood testing lab there and saying that she needed to volunteer for night shifts on Fridays and weekends, it fell apart because she didn't have something that my sister had, which was like a, a key card or a oh. uniform. One time, Jennifer's parents tried to drop her off. Her mom tried to follow her in and see oh. where she was going. Jennifer realized that she was being followed by her mother. And so she hid in the waiting area of the ER until they left. And then her parents also called the next morning to the friend that she was supposedly staying with. That friend told the truth, which was that Jennifer wasn't there. Mm. When she finally got home, her father confronted her. And then that's when she confessed. To not being a volunteer and that's it? Or to Daniel? She confessed a lot. She didn't volunteer at the, the famous children's hospital. She had never been in the University of Toronto's pharmacology program. That she had been staying at Daniel's. Oh. 
But she didn't tell them that she had actually never graduated high school and that she hadn't attended the other Canadian university for the first two years. Her parents were incredibly upset to the point where her mother cried. Her father was so upset that he told her to get out and never come back. But her mother convinced him to let Jennifer stay. And so they took away her cell phone and laptop and she was only permitted to use them in their presence and had to endure surprise checks of her messages. And they also forbade her from seeing Daniel. And how old is she when this happened? Early 20s. Yeah. So they say no to Daniel. I'm sure they're furious because this has been going on for years. Because it confirms their suspicions of him. What is the next big thing for you? I think it's how it escalates. She felt really devoted to Daniel and their secretive romance. So even after the exposure of a lot of her lies, she continues to deceive her parents even after she's lost their trust. So she literally arranges her blankets to look like she's asleep and then sneaks out to Daniel's house. And the lie is exposed because she had her mother's wallet. And so in the morning, her mother goes into her room and discovers that Jennifer was gone. And they still want her to apply to college, right? They wanted her to become a pharmacy lab technician or a nurse. And their only stipulation is, of course, that she cuts off all contact with Daniel. And at this point, like you said, she's 24 and still sneaking around. And Daniel, being slightly older than her, is tired and breaks up with her. Wow. Making her really heartbroken. So then that, I think, is a really key moment in which her desperation increases. How does that manifest itself, this desperation that she's feeling? What's the next step for her? Well, she finds out that Daniel is seeing a new person named Christine. Oh, no. And in an attempt to win back his attention, she makes up an even more bizarre story, which is that she tells Daniel that a man had knocked on her door and flashed what looked like a police badge. When she opened the door, a group of men rushed in, overpowered her, and gang-raped her in the foyer of her house. And then a few days later, she says that she received a bullet in an envelope in her mailbox. And she said that both instances were warnings from Christine to leave Daniel alone. So what is Daniel's reaction to this story? Did he break up with Christine? Do you know? No. Okay. He doesn't break up with Christine, but a real issue is that he continues to communicate with Jennifer in a way that doesn't help her move on. There's something very human about being pulled into the feeling of being important to someone else. And even when that relationship isn't healthy, at this point, it gets really bad because they were still exchanging daily text messages that were that were pretty flirty. It escalated to the point where they crafted the plan that would lead to the horrific incident that put her in the news in the first place. Okay, so... What was the plan? What were they discussing? They were going to hire people to kill Jennifer's parents to collect the estate because Jennifer's portion alone would total about half a million dollars and live together, freed from their disdain and meddling. East Asian immigrant families are incredibly savings-minded. Often you have to help other families out, right, back home, cash, quite frankly, for like medical services. There's things like gifts for weddings, saving, especially when you come over with nothing. My mother immigrated to Canada with $100 in her pocket. It is a huge priority among immigrant families. The plan for Daniel and for Jennifer was they were going to hire some hitman to kill her parents. And then she and her brother, presumably, who didn't know anything about this, would end up splitting the estate. Right. And a really important thing was Daniel connected Jennifer to the acquaintances that had a price for executing this plan. 
Jennifer contacts Lenford Crawford and asked what the going rate was. Crawford said it was $20,000, but offers a friend's discount via Daniel for $10,000. Daniel enables the communication by giving Jennifer a spare iPhone and SIM card so that she could isolate the crime-related conversations to that phone. Okay. and use her phone for everything else. There is even a scouting mission on Halloween under the distraction of all the kids streaming up and down the street. So two days after Halloween that year, Daniel texts Jennifer by saying that he felt as strongly about Christine as she did about him. And I'm assuming Jennifer did not like this. She actually tells Daniel that he should call it off. Hmm. He replies that, I thought you wanted this for yourself. She's like, I do, but I have nowhere to go. And then the next day, Daniel says, you know, I did everything and lined it up for you. And it basically seems like Daniel wanted out of the arrangement. But then later that day, they, they literally go back to their old ways and start texting and flirting each other. This entire exchange becomes really, really important later on in terms of the level of involvement both of them have in the plan. Over the next couple of days, there is a lot of text messaging between Lentford, Jennifer, and Daniel regarding when it will be the right time for the plan to go forward. It's really hard. I remember hearing the 911 call about this, and I am not a crime reporter. So the thing that happens next is really, really horrible and simple at the same time. Jennifer watches Gossip Girl and John and Kate Plus 8 in her room. Her dad is watching Vietnamese news before going to bed early around 8.30. Her mother is out line dancing with a friend and cousin, and her younger brother is away from home studying engineering at a prestigious university called McMaster. Around 9.30, her mother comes home from her line dancing class, changes into her pajamas, and then soaks her feet in front of the TV on the main floor. Very simple domestic activities. Mm-hmm. But shortly after that, at 9.35, a man named David Milvaganum, who is a friend of Lenford Crawford's, calls Jennifer and they speak for nearly two minutes. And then Jennifer goes downstairs to say goodnight to her mother. But then she later admits that she also unlocks the front door. And she also retracts this particular statement. So just after 10 o'clock at around 10.02, a light in the upstairs study is turned on, allegedly a signal to the intruders, And a minute later, it's turned off. And at 10.05, David calls again. He and Jennifer speak for three and a half minutes. And then moments later, Lenford, David, and a third man named Eric Carty walk through the front door, all carrying guns. We're talking with reporter Karen Cahoe, who is discussing Jennifer Pan's plan to have her parents murdered by hitmen in 2010. She wants to collect her inheritance and live with her boyfriend, Daniel. Jennifer has let the killers inside her parents' house in the middle of the night. They carry guns as they walk through the door, searching for Jennifer's mother and father. One of them points their gun at Jennifer's mother, while another person runs upstairs, shoved a gun in Jennifer's dad's face and directs him out of bed, down the stairs and into the living room. Upstairs, Eric confronts Jennifer outside of her bedroom door. According to Jennifer, Eric ties her arms behind her using a shoelace, directs her back inside where she hands over approximately $2,500 in Canadian cash, and then gets her to her parents' bedroom where he locates $1,100 in U.S. dollars in her mother's nightstand, and then finally to the kitchen to search for her mother's wallet. And the parents have a lot of questions. Her mother asks 
her father, how did they enter the house? And her father's like, I don't know, I was sleeping. And they ask about where the money is in the house. And Jennifer's father is actually pistol whipped on the back of his head. And this causes Jennifer's mother to begin weeping, please don't hurt their daughter. The really hard part is Jennifer calls 911 after they shoot her father twice, once in the shoulder and then once in the face. And then they shoot her mother three times in the head killing her instantly. This is after Eric and David and Lenford take the couple to the basement and cover their heads with blankets. And so on the tape, she says, help me, please, I need help. And she says, I don't know where my parents are. The astonishing thing about the 911 call is at the 34 second mark, you can actually hear her father moaning in the background because he had awoken despite being shot in the head and was covered in blood with his dead wife's body next to him. And he was able to somehow crawl up the stairs to the main floor and he stumbled outside screaming wildly and encountered a neighbor who was about to leave for work. And the neighbor also called 911. And so the police and an ambulance arrived at the scene pretty quickly. And then he was rushed to hospital and then airlifted to a specialized medical facility. Did he survive? He did. Wow. And that becomes really, really important later in the case. Does he remember? Yeah. Wow. So, okay, police come and they start interviewing her and... So she makes several statements to the police and they're really long. They interview her just before 3 a.m., and then two days later, she gives a second statement. The police just have so many questions. Like the family had luxury vehicles like Alexis, and the keys were right near the door, but the intruders didn't take the keys to the car. Basically, none of the telltale signs of burglars, robbers coming in. Right. And also the fact that she basically escapes unharmed compared to her parents. So her father was in a three-day induced coma, but then wakes up with pretty serious injuries, right? He has a broken bone near his eye, like bullet fragments lodged in his face that the doctors couldn't remove and a shattered neck bone because the bullet had grazed the artery. He remembers everything, including really important details that contradict her account to the police, which is that he recalls seeing his daughter chatting softly like a friend with one of the intruders and her arms were not tied behind her back while she was led around the house. Boy. And so that causes the police to bring Jennifer in for a third interview. The detective said that he knew that she was involved in the crime and that he knew that she had lied to him and said that it was in her best interest to fess up. And Jennifer, hunched over, sobbing, repeatedly asked, what happens to me? And so then over the next four hours, her explanation is beyond bizarre, which is that the attack had been an elaborate plan to commit suicide, gone horribly wrong. She'd given up on life but couldn't manage to kill herself. So she hired Ledford, whose name she claimed that she didn't know, and then... In September, her relationship with her father had suddenly improved and she decided to call off the hit, but somehow wires had gotten crossed and the men ended up killing her parents instead of her. It's a terrible lie. Well, the police arrested her on the spot, (laughs) so they didn't believe her either. These three guys, does it take long to figure out who they are? Because of analysis of cell phone calls and text messages in the spring, they charged Daniel, Eric, Lenford, and David with first-degree murder, attempted murder, and conspiracy to commit. Wow. So what is the conclusion of this case? Does everybody get jail time, I'm assuming? Yeah, after one of the longest trials, the trial begins on March 19th and sentencing doesn't happen until I think January of the next year. What made it so long? There's the fact that there's so many people involved. There's an enormous amount of evidence, the text messages, there's the phone calls, there's the extensive relationship between Jennifer and Daniel. Exchange of money, I'm assuming. They were trying to figure out where that $10,000 came from and tracing that. Right. There was a lot of interest. And then there was the fact that they wanted to make sure that there was concern also regarding mental health. 
I think there's always a concern that there could be a claim that this was done when someone is not uh, psychologically sound. And then there's also the fact that the deception took place over such a long period of time. And so gathering those details takes a lot of work. For the charge of first-degree murder alone, Jennifer received an automatic life sentence with no chance of parole for 25 years. And then for the attempted murder of her father, she received another sentence of life to be served concurrently. And that was the same sentence for Daniel and two of the people who carried out the hit. And the third person, his lawyer actually fell ill during the trial, and his, his trial was postponed to 2016. And in addition to those sentences, there was two non-communication orders between the five defendants, as well as one between Jennifer and her family at her father and brother's request. Has she spoken to anybody? For the first two years, it was really difficult because there was the hope of the appeal, that they would file for an appeal. And so there was no incentive for them to talk to anyone, including people like me or other people interested in profiling the story. There was a long-term burden, which was that Jennifer's dad is now unable to work due to his injuries, suffers anxiety attacks, insomnia, and uh, nightmares when he sleeps. He suffers constant pain and has given up working on the cars or listening to music since none of those activities bring him any joy anymore. And he can't bear to be in the house anymore, so he lives with relatives nearby. And the younger brother, Felix, after moving to the east coast of Canada to find work with a private technology company, suffers from depression and has become closed off. And the house essentially became really difficult to sell, right? Because no one wanted to buy it. And both of these were details in their impact statements. I think it was really heartbreaking to read that when Jennifer's dad said that he lost his wife, he also lost his daughter at the same time. He he didn't feel like he had a family anymore and he doesn't feel lucky to be alive at all. He feels like he's dead too. There is a sort of grief for re-examining someone that you think you know really well with Daniel, who I originally centered my pitch on because he tutored my sister. He spoke Cantonese to my parents, made food at my house. You would have never thought he was capable of this. It makes you re-examine what you think it is to know somebody and to be really close. That is really unmooring and speaks to how much people can change in a very short amount of time. Or even there comes a time when people go through a lot of betrayals and you second guess how well you think you know somebody. Are there any lessons learned out of this story? It's complicated. I had another journalist tell me that when he read my story that it made him rethink the way that he parented his daughter. And that has stuck with me for a really long time. Unfortunately, the story, people are really emotional about it. And so I was really nervous about doing this interview because I've been accused in the past of exploiting it for my own professional gain. And I did it basically two years on spec. I don't think I made money after I did it. Like I turned down a book deal. There was another book written about it. There have been a lot of documentaries or made for TV adaptations and things like that. I wanted to tell the version of the story that I knew to be true, which was that it wasn't a stereotype of someone who could commit this horrific experience. I think when we talk about journalism, we talk about changing laws or exposing inequities. At the heart of it was a really horrific crime, but I wanted to explain how I feel a level of empathy for Jennifer and Daniel from knowing them as people. They were not stereotypes. They were not what we often think of when we think of really horrific crimes. It's incredibly common, and it's not just East Asian kids 
who feel the toxicity of really crushing expectations. I, I'm reading more and more about kids of affluent parents who have real difficulty with anxiety and depression or substance abuse because they feel trapped in their parents' expectations for excellence or success financially or academically. I'm also really curious about what it says about trust and communication. I'm very lucky to still be very close with my mother and my sister, who I communicate with a lot. I think the lessons, because I... I see it discussed a lot among parents. It's just how do you build a way for your kids to communicate with you so that they trust you and feel that they can be honest with you about their struggles so that they don't feel the need to lie or hide about their ambitions and their dreams or what's making their life difficult. I don't know if I will have kids, but it's a series of choices that parents make. It builds over time. I end the story by saying that I didn't feel enjoyment writing it at all. I think it's really important to say that I did it very specifically because I felt like I had a window into an experience and a really challenging relationship between a father and a daughter that I have more in common with than most people would be able to understand. When I look back, there were very small but important moments that separated me from the choices Jennifer made. On the next episode of Wicked Words... A policeman sees smoke coming out of the back of the strip mall. It's past 11, and everything's closed, everything's dark. And he found out it was the yogurt shop. He calls the fire department, and one of the firemen trips over something, and he nudges the guy next to him and points down and says, Is that a foot? If you love historical true crime, please check out my books, American Sherlock and Death in the Air. This has been an Exactly Right, Tenfold More Media production. Alexis Amorosi is our producer. Andrew Epen is our sound designer. Ella Middleton is a researcher for us. Curtis Heath does the composition. Nick Toga did the artwork. And Ilsa Brink designed the website. The executive producers are Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow Wicked Words on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. If you are an advertiser interested in advertising on our show, go to midroll.com slash ads. And if you know of a historical true crime story that could use some attention from the crew at Tenfold More Wicked, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. Listen, subscribe, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts.